wonderful music tonight. Thank you. In your Bibles, let's go to Romans chapter 5 in the Word of God tonight. Romans chapter 5. Can you see it tonight? Verbena, how many you got a napkin this afternoon? All right, a couple of you did. I snuck in 15 minutes. That'll help a little bit. <laughs> but uh, at any rate, uh, when I was growing up, my dad made us take a nap on Sunday afternoon. I mean, it was like religious. This was like, <laughs> this was like, uh, this had to be. Now, I finally figured it out. It was so he could take a nap. <laughs> but at any rate, it's in my system now. This is what I got to do. But uh, at any rate, let's uh, look tonight at Romans chapter 5. Good to see you tonight. May the Lord breathe on us in this time tonight. Enjoyed the uh, time this morning. Appreciate the hungry hearts. And uh, I trust that the Lord will take his truth deep within our hearts. We saw this morning the importance of focusing on the object of faith, obviously the Lord. We looked at the beautiful picture there in Proverbs, the name of the Lord being that strong tower. So focus is very important uh, because what you focus on, as we're going to see tonight, is what you depend on, and that's why it's so vital. Now often there are many people who really want to do what's right. They want to live for God. Uh, they want to, uh, to do what's right and you know, not be indulged in wickedness and so forth. And, and yet they find themselves stumbling, find themselves uh, doing the very things they don't want to do. It's like we read about in Romans 7, the good that I would, I do not. The evil that I don't want to do is what I end up doing. And uh, people that are honestly wanting to live victoriously and to live in victory over sin. So why? Is it just that's the way it is, this side of heaven? Or is there perhaps a wrong focus that's very subtle, very deceptive, and thus very misleading. Romans is a gospel book. The word gospel means good news. In fact, in chapter 15, verse 16, the entire book of Romans is referred to as the gospel. Now, we have the gospel to sinners in the first five chapters. That is justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. Then you have the gospel to the saints in Romans 6 through 8. I think in a former meeting we spent some time on Romans 6 through 8. Uh, but that's the gospel to the saints. Sanctification by grace through faith in Christ alone. And then there's God's system in Romans 9, 10, 11. That it's all by grace and it's accessed by faith. That is the way God set it up and no man can change that. Then you come to Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you. Uh, brethren, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. That is the pivotal turning point from all this doctrine to the practical application. And then the rest of the book from chapter 12, verse 1 to the end of the book gives us that practical application. Now, our text tonight is the bridge between the gospel to sinners and the gospel to saints. It is the platform that takes us from the one to the other. It is a marvelous, uh, amazing text of Scripture. So tonight, let's look at it. Romans chapter 5, I'll begin to read in verse 17. Since by one man's trespass, death reigned. Now notice the word reign. We're going to see it come up several times in our text here. Reign, ruled, had dominion, okay? So death reigned through that one man. How much more? Notice the contrast. Will those who receive, now here's a beautiful phrase, the overflow of grace, the abundance of grace, and the gift of righteousness reign. There it is. Rule. 
have dominion. That's beautiful. In life. That's right now. That's not heaven. That's right now. How much more will those who receive this overflow of spirit enablement, this overflow of grace, and of the gift of righteousness, reign, rule, have dominion right now, in life, out, by one man, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Verse 18, so then, as to one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone, So also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, constituted sinners, so also through one man's obedience, the many will be made, constituted righteous. Wow, made righteous, made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass. Let me just stop right there for a second. <clears throat> Did you notice why the law came along? It to sh- it's to show us when we blow it. The law has no power to help you do right. The law is holy and just and good, Romans 7 tells us, but its purpose is not to empower us. It's not a person. Power comes from a person. The law is to multiply the trespass. The law is to show us when we actually do wrong. But where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more so that just as sin reigned, ruled, had dominion in death, so also grace, this Holy Spirit enablement will reign, rule, have dominion through righteousness resulting or literally accessing the eternal life of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, verse 17 says, those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one man, Jesus Christ. Friends, are we experiencing that? It is conditional. There's the reception of this overflow of grace and gift of righteousness, but it's not just going to heaven. It's reigning right now in life, this side of heaven. By one person, his name is Jesus. You see, often we find ourselves as struggling sinners when God wants us to be the righteous reigning. And so that's what I want to speak on tonight. Struggling sinners or righteous reigning. We're going to pray. Let me ask you to join me in prayer. And would you, in your own heart, ask the Holy Spirit to be your teacher tonight? Ask him to open your understanding. Ask him to give you that enlightenment where you see the truth personified in Jesus who sets free. Lord, we thank you tonight for this service. Thank you already for stirring our hearts. Now, Spirit of the living God, we need you to be our teacher tonight, to open the eyes of our understanding, to give us that revelation of Jesus in a way that nurtures faith so that we literally receive this overflow of grace and know it. Lord, I pray for that one who is beat up, discouraged because of bitterness, can't seem to get a handle on, because of anger and irritation that just seemed to overcome, and they're overcome instead of overcoming. Lord, all of us have times when we stumble and we feel like, oh, Lord, what in the world is wrong? Lord, open our eyes tonight to the provision that is found in a person 
simple access of faith to a right focus. So Lord, do tonight what man cannot do and do the kind of work in our hearts that brings transformation. May the Lord Jesus be honored. Lord Jesus, we do claim our position in you on the throne far above the enemy. We claim the victory that you won over the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so in your name, I exercise your authority over any powers of darkness that would seek to hinder. And Lord, I trust you that that not be allowed. Lord Jesus, we need a fresh meeting with you tonight. We need this time to count. So may you be seen and lifted up. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, when I was a young preacher, I remember hearing an older preacher say, if you want victory over sin, well, that caught my attention because I needed it. He said, if you want victory over sin, memorize Romans chapter 6. I thought, I can do this. <laughs> I was a good memorizer. <laughs> and so I memorized Romans chapter 6. He said, if you want victory over sin, just memorize Romans 6. Boy, I did, man. I could stand there and I could just spout out Romans chapter 6. And guess what happened? Nothing <laughs> other than I could quote Romans chapter 6. You see, if you don't understand what you memorized and depend on the truth of it, then obviously you're not helped. Have you ever noticed in the scripture over there in Psalm 119, it says, your word have I treasured or hid or hidden in my heart that I might not sin against God. Did you notice what it actually says? We often miss this. It says, your word have I hid in my, it doesn't say mind. It assumes the mind, but it's more than the mind. It does not say. Now, most of the time, we interpret it. I hear it preached on, and it's interpreted as, thy, uh, you know, your word, thy word, uh, have I hid in my mind. But that is not what it says. It says, your word have I treasured in my heart. So what's the difference? Because it's critical. We'll come back to that in a moment. Before we do, I want to ask you three questions tonight. I hope you'll be honest. Uh, you do not have to raise your hand uh, or respond outwardly on the first two questions. <laughs> I will ask you to respond uh, more overtly on the last question. But the first two questions, just in your heart, give me, you know, put a register and answer in, in, in your thinking. Okay, first question. On an average day, just a Joe Blow average day, how many sins would you say you commit compared to acts of righteousness? So what I'm after here is a ratio. This many sins compared to this many acts of righteousness. On an average day, how many sins would you say you commit compared to acts of righteousness? Got an answer in your mind? <laughs> All right, try to just get some kind of answer. How many sins do you, would you say you commit compared to acts of righteousness? Some kind of ratio, this many to this many. Second question. This is similar, but a different nuance. On a scale of 1 to 100... What percentage of your average day would you say is righteous? Scale of 1 to 100, what percentage of your average day would you say is righteous? All right, register that answer in your mind. Now, third question, I would like you to raise your hand, and heads are not bowed, and eyes are not closed. <laughs> but go ahead and raise your hand on this one accordingly. Third question, if you have not sinned today, Raise your hand. <laughs> All right, I don't see any hands. Now, if you did not raise your hand, which was everybody, what sins came to mind? Was there anything specific? Now, 
in audiences where actually they have tallied this, taken the, the statistics and put the data together and come up with the statistics and so on, on the first question, on an average day, how many sins would you say you commit compared to average right, uh, acts of righteousness? The average audience says three sins compared to one act of righteousness. That's the average audience. About three sins to one act of righteousness. There was one seminary class where it was only two sins <laughs> compared to acts of righteousness. It's kind of funny to me. Uh, but that's the average audience, three sins to one. On the second question, on a scale of 1 to 100, what percentage of your average day would you say is righteous? The average audience has it somewhere between 30%, that's fairly low, up to about 60%, but notice most of that is less than 50%. That's the average audience of Christian churches. Uh, they'll say that, uh, you know, the percentage of the day that's righteous, that's uh, about 30%, maybe uh, for some up to 60%, but most of that is on the lower end of the scale. That's interesting to me. On the final question, most audiences are just like you. Nobody raises their hand. Uh, when asked if you have not sinned today, uh, raise your hand. Uh, rarely does somebody raise their hand. And then the follow-up question, what sins came to mind? And you know what a lot of people are thinking? Well, I don't know, but I'm sure I did something. Now, in some cases, yeah, I blew up, I got ticked, I said this. <laughs> I, I understand that. But in, in some cases, especially if it's a Sunday morning service, if I ask this, the day's not been as long yet. People think, well, I don't know what I did, but I'm sure I did something. You know what that means? They have a view of themselves as, I'm a dirt ball. You know, we almost pride ourselves in saying, I'm a, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. And we think we're being humble when we say that. But it's interesting because it's, it's a viewpoint. It's an attitude that uh, says basically, well, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, I'm a dirt ball. Now, I recognize there are a lot of times we make dirty messes. When we ignore our provision, <laughs> we ignore all that's there, all that's available, and yeah, we say this, we do this, and we get in, in, you know, we get in messes. I get that, dirty messes sometimes. But the fact is, if you view yourself as a dirty, rotten sinner, what do you think you're going to end up doing? Sin. See, it reveals your heart. Now, what is the difference between the soul and the heart? This is a very uh, interesting study. I won't take time to go into all the details behind this, but your heart is the reflection of your soul. Your soul is your mind, your affections, and your will. On a given day, we have all sorts of thoughts come into our mind. You drive down the street, you see this hotel, you see the street, see the dog walking down the street or whatever. You have all sorts of thoughts. Most of them go right back out as fast as they came in. But throughout our lives, there are certain thoughts that we latch on to. We, we grab them. We, we embrace them. And they affect us. That's why we call the affections the affections. It's what we latch on to in our mind that affects us. Those affections uh, produce emotions. They're involuntary, but it's because of what we've chosen to latch on to in our minds. So we're affected. There's some emotions. And that pushes our will, our wills, to the choices that we make. The summation of that is your heart. Your inclinations because of what you embrace, what you, what you really believe. See, your heart is a reflection of your belief system. It's what you have latched onto. It's what you, you hold onto as being so, and therefore that affects you, and it obviously affects your choices. That's your heart. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart. It doesn't say his mind. 
But as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. It's actually a fascinating passage. And it goes on to explain that the idea is we all act out what we really believe. See, tonight, I am not so much interested in what you say you believe. I am interested tonight in what you really believe. Because what you say you believe and what you really believe may be two different things. Two years ago, God confronted me with this truth, and I'm going to tell you, man, it was a startling confrontation because I'm thinking, wait a second, do I really believe what I even preach? Because there is a difference between what we say we believe versus what we really believe, and the fact is, as a man thinks in his heart, in other words, as he believes, in other words, the, the thinks in his heart is that's your, that's your belief system, it's how you process things based on what you really believe is true, uh, reflecting your grid of absolutes, and that produces your mode of operation. See, we all act out what we really believe. Now, in most sermons, Preachers start out with their big point. They call it a thesis, a proposition, whatever, you know. And uh, depending on what, uh, what homiletical teacher you had. And then you have your points that support it. Tonight, I want to start with the, the points, the discussion, and then we'll end up with the big truth at the end. But first tonight, first part of our discussion is what I'm going to call a description of a sin-conscious mindset. A description of a sin-conscious system of belief. Back to this idea that, well, I don't know what I did, but I'm sure I did something. This dirt ball viewpoint. Okay, I want to describe that mindset that leads people to come to that conclusion. This sin-conscious system of belief. It starts with being law-focused. Law-focused. Now, most people would not say, I'm law-focused. But let me describe it. They have this idea, well, i got to do this, and i got to not do that. Now, that certainly sounds good. There are certain things we should do and certain things we should not do. But if the focus is, i got to do this, and i got to not do that, that's a law-focus. You may not call it law, but that's what it is. These are the things I need to do. These are the things I should not do. And so it is a focus uh, on this goal, goal focus of these things I got to do, these things I got to not do. In other words, we can describe this as being focused on not sinning. You say, man, well, that, well, that sounds good. You know what the problem with that is? This is so subtle. If you're focused on not sinning, you're focused on sin. And if you're focused on sin, what's it going to lead you to? sin. See, what, a, what an amazing deception here where we get focused on, man, i got to make sure I do this or i got to not do this. And, and this doesn't mean, it's not necessarily what's most conservative. It's just that I, this is what i got to do and this is what i got to not do. That focus is your version of law. Whether it's strict or whether it's conservative, it's not the point here. It's our version of law and got to do this, got to not do this and in our minds, that's uh, being focused on not sinning, which means we're focused on sin, and it leads us to sin. Now, that focus leads then to feelings of fear. How long will it be till I blow it again? Especially when you have blown it, you get right with God, you take the cleansing of the blood, praise the Lord for that. But then you're thinking, well, how long will it be till I go down again? Many of you took the Lord's Supper today. To do that, you 
Search your heart. And whatever the Spirit of God showed you, you got it right. And the blood of Jesus cleans you up. He, he does every time we get honest. But the thinking may be, well, okay, that was wonderful. I wonder how long it'll be until I blow it again. See, there's that fear. Why? Because you're focused on this expectation. And so that produces feelings of, man, I've got to try harder. Which is, produces feelings of unworthiness because we don't measure up. Which produces feelings of insufficiency because apparently we don't have what it takes. Which produces feelings of frustration because we can't achieve our goal. The list, the do's, the don'ts. Now, don't get me wrong. There are things we should do and things we should don't do. But the issue here is focus. And so it's frustrating because uh, we can't seem to achieve this goal. And that produces feelings of guilt because we're failing. And that produces condemnation. And you know, the accuser of the brother is glad to join right in and say, Yep, man, you, you're, you really are a dirtball. Look at you. Look at the mess you just made. You're a loser. You're a failure. You're a dud. And yet at the same time, when this is our focus, we're judgmental of others. Because if you're focused on not sinning, when somebody else blows it, you're quite aware and then we're very judgmental. Interesting. From this belief system about yourself, living the true Christian life would be rather unnatural. Because <laughs> you view yourself as a dirtball, so living the true Christian life doesn't fit that because the true Christian life would be opposite of what you believe you are. Now, before we go to the next point of the discussion, let me take a moment to compare the sin-conscious mindset with a God-conscious mindset. In the sin-conscious mindset, we see that we're law-focused. And uh, the problem is not the law. The law is holy and just and good. The problem is that's not the object of our faith in the sense of that should not be our focus. The focus has to be a person. If you don't get to the person, you miss out. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, that is the spirit who gives life. And it goes on, uh, it says prior to that, that the letter, referring to the letter of the law, kills. See, that's death. And the next verse says, I think I preached on this several years ago here, that the law then is a ministry of death. We saw it in our text in Romans 5. The purpose of the law is not to help you do right. Because it has no power to help you do right. The purpose of the law is to show you when you do wrong. So if that's your focus, guess what? <laughs> you just know when you're blowing it. And that leads to the joyless Christianity that many have. And by the way, some people say, well, I'm not focused on the law. But they're focused on no law, which means they're focused on law in reverse. The key is getting to the person. Because in the God-conscious mindset, instead of being law or no law focused... You're focused on Jesus. The law is a ministry of death. Jesus is life himself. We saw that this morning. So the Jesus focus is not death, it's life. You see, in the sin-conscious mindset, we're focused on not sinning. In the God-conscious mindset, we're focused on the righteous one. Over here, we're focused on a list. Over here, we're focused on a person. That is the radical difference. In the sin-conscious mindset, there's that mode of fear. When will I blow it again? In the God-conscious mindset, there's the mode of faith. That confidence or resting in God. In the sin-conscious mindset, there's the mode of try harder. In the God-conscious mindset, there is that trusting in the Lord who is the enablement that we all need. In that sin-conscious mindset, there's that sense of unworthiness because we don't measure up. 
But in the God-conscious mindset, there's that sense of worthiness in Christ who measured up and continues to measure up for us. What an amazing truth. In the sin-conscious mindset, there's that sense of insufficiency. We don't have what it takes. In the God-conscious mindset, there's a sense of God-sufficiency. He does have what it takes. In the sin-conscious mindset, there's that frustration. In the God-conscious mindset, there's peace. In the sin-conscious mindset, there's guilt. In the God-conscious mindset, there's joy as you experience freedom in Christ. In the sin-conscious mindset, there's condemnation. In the God-conscious mindset, there's no condemnation. In the sin-conscious mindset, we're judgmental. In the God-conscious mindset, we're not judgmental. In the sin-conscious mindset, living the true Christian life would be unnatural to what we believe we are. But in the God-conscious mindset, living the true Christian life would be natural because you are accessing the Christian life himself. What we called in one of the points this morning, the victorious life himself. So, which of those descriptions describes your thinking? Now, before we fully answer, let's go to the second part of our discussion. This is a diagnosis of a sin-conscious mindset. We live in the age of symptoms <laughs> and diagnosing. So I want to give seven symptoms to a sin-conscious way of thinking. In other words, let's diagnose this sin-conscious paradigm. Let's look at seven symptoms of a sin-conscious system of belief. This would be assuming that you know Jesus as Savior. Number one. You consider yourself still a sinner, saved by grace. Key word there is still. You consider yourself still a sinner, saved by grace. Now, obviously, tonight, if you're saved, the truth is you were a sinner. That's why you needed to get saved. And if you got saved, you got saved by grace. That's clear. The question is, are you still a sinner? See, a lot of times people say, well, you know, I'm just a sinner. As if. They're still just a sinner. Now, we were sinners. But you know the Bible makes it clear that if you were a child of God in the New Testament era, you were a sinner, you are a saint who can still sin. You see, there's a difference of focus here in, in our understanding of who we are in Christ and how God views us. You see, God calls believers in Jesus in the New Testament, which is a relatively short piece of literature, God calls believers saints. Holy ones, that's what the word means, 63 times. 63 times in the short piece of the New Testament, God calls believers saints, holy ones. You see, we were sinners, but technically we are saints. There's only one time that the present tense is used for a believer with the word sinner. And that's when Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. But if you look at the context, he's talking really about his former life because he persecuted believers. And yes, obviously, all of us can still sin. We know that. And in that sense, we could say we're sinners. But the truth is, there's a radical change that took place whereby God is not calling us sinners. He's calling us saints. And so when we just have this viewpoint, well, I'm just this dirty, rotten sinner, we're insulting what God says. Because God says, you're a saint. You're a holy one. 
I have a dear friend, he's with the Lord now. He put it this way, I once was a sinner, but now I'm a saint. Maturing I am, but perfect I ain't. <laughs> you see, at salvation, something happened. Yes, it's not automatic. We can still sin. We're able to sin. We all know that all too well, <laughs> way too well. But do you know because you're a child of God, you're able not to sin? You will come to that. So ideas matter. You're a saint. Here's the second symptom of a sin-conscious system of belief. You assume that you sin often, even without knowing it. And thus, how many uh, sins have you committed today? Or uh, uh, whatever that question was, if you've not sinned today, raise your hand. And uh, if, you if you couldn't raise your hand, what sins came to your mind? There may be some where, where you couldn't think of what it was, but the assumption is, well, you know, I'm, I'm sure I sin often, even without knowing it. Okay, that means we view ourselves on the sinner side of this instead of on the saint side of this, who can still sin. But there's a difference there. You see, is that really how it works, that we sin often, even without knowing it? You know, when you got saved, didn't the Holy Spirit move inside of you? Does he not warn you when sin's coming, when it's approaching? And even if we ignore all of those warnings and just do despot to the spirit of grace, as Hebrews talked about, when we cross that line into the flesh and cave in to sin, does not the Holy Spirit immediately convict us? It's just like the referee in the ball games that you saw this afternoon. He blows a whistle. <laughs> you know, you're out of bounds or whatever happened. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit blows the whistle. So it's not like we would be sinning all the time and not knowing it. Now, I do recognize it's so, it is possible to so trample the Holy Spirit and so trample the con uh, your conscience that you can get desensitized. But even in that condition, if you cry out like you were challenged to this morning during the, uh, the communion with the Lord's Supper, and you say, Lord, would you search my heart? He will, and he'll show you exactly what's wrong, and you'll know exactly what it was. Do you know that when the Holy Spirit convicts us, it's never general? It's always specific. General conviction is a counterfeit of the enemy to get you to follow the wrong voice. When the Holy Spirit convicts, there's always, it's always specific and always with light at the end of the tumble, tunnel. If we'll get honest, the blood will clean us up. But see, if we're thinking that we probably are sinning, you know, you know that we sin often even without knowing it, then that means we're thinking that we're sinning, you know, all the time. If that's what you think about yourself, that's going to affect your relationship with God, not him towards you, but you toward him. That's going to affect your faith because you're always going to be feeling like I'm blowing it. You're going to walk around with a sense of shame. Now, I preach in a lot of churches, folks, in a lot of churches, a lot of Christian schools, uh, not as many of those these days, but back in the day when that was big, there was a lot of those. I'm on college campuses. You know, it's amazing to me to just watch people, just stand there and watch and notice how many heads are down. People passing each other in the hallway <laughs> with their head down, this sense of shame, this sense of guilt. There's something wrong with that. Number three, third symptom of a sin-conscious system of belief. You assume it is normal to sin regularly. Key word here is normal. You assume it is normal to sin regularly. In fact, we have a phrase, you know, when we blow it, and we say, well, I shouldn't have done that, but you know, I can't really help it because I'm only human. 
Isn't that a big one? Now, I'm not sure if, the, if that's accurate. We'll see why here in a moment. Are you really only human if you're a child of God? But that's what we say, and so that's our excuse to think that, well, you know, it's just normal to sin regularly. That's just the way it is this side of heaven. Is that what the New Testament teaches? You know, a few chapters from here, you come to Romans 8, and it says that we, as a child of God, are more than conquerors. Huh. Wow. More than conquerors? Not just conquerors. More than conquerors? Friends, apparently there's that kind of provision. Wow. So that's contradicting this idea that it's normal to sin regularly. Back in the New Testament, it often speaks of victory. Thanks be to God who is giving us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But in the New Testament, it's never automatic. It's always by faith. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. But there's an emphasis that, hey, there is a provision. His name is Jesus. He is giving us the victory. Jesus, our Lord, the access is faith, which means it's not an inevitability. It's a responsibility, but the provision is there. But because it's not automatic, the Bible warns us to flee fornication. Flee also youthful lust. It admonishes us to walk in the provision of the Spirit so that you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. We're told in 1 John 2, 1, Brethren, I'm writing to you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate, a lawyer with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Isn't that a wonderful truth? <laughs> if, if we do blow it, and yes, there are those tragically too many times when we do, we have an advocate to say, wait a second, they're a child of God, their sins are under my blood. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. And when we walk in the light and confess our sins, the blood of Jesus comes in and cleans our conscience up so that we're free before God again. That's marvelous. But did you notice the wording in that text, 1 John 2, 1? Brethren, beloved, I'm writing to you that you sin not, and if any man sins. You see, that's the exception. See, we often view it the other way. If any man has a moment where he does a good thing, <laughs> or he has a good day, when God has it the other way around, I'm writing to you that you sin not, that's the norm, and if any man sin, that's the exception. Wow. That's New Testament. Number four. Fourth symptom of a sin-conscious system of belief. You believe that temptation itself is sin. That if you're tempted, oh, how could that be in my mind? You believe that temptation itself is sin. Now, in an audience such as this, I'm sure that there are many here tonight that would say, no, 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 temptation is not sin. But again, I'm not interested in what you say you believe as much as I am in what you really believe. Let's find out what you really believe. When... Something wrong, perhaps even vile, comes rolling through your brain. If you immediately confess it, then you believe that temptation itself is sin. Friends, if temptation itself is sin, we're sinning all the time. Because <laughs> there's triggers all over the world, pictures. Now it's, now it's right in our hands. But just, you know, going through life, there's stuff, you hear this, you see this, and 
all, I mean, there's constant triggers to temptation. If temptation itself is sin, there's all sorts of snares, there's all sorts of traps, there's all sorts of triggers in our world, uh, fiery darts even in the unseen realm, and uh, that means, oh man, we'd be in trouble. If temptation itself is sin, we're sinning all the time. But temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted in all points like as we, yet without sin. So it can't be sin because he was tempted. It says so. That's why Jesus said, pray that you don't enter into temptation. That implies that it does not become sin unless you enter into the temptation. But it implies that the temptation itself is not sin. And friends, praise the Lord for that. The temptation itself is not sin. We have the opportunity to take the way of escape in Jesus, even though we've been tempted. But if you think the temptation itself is sin, that's a symptom of a sin-conscious system of belief. Number five, fifth symptom of a sin-conscious system of belief. You assume it's easier to sin than to do right. That's the big one. You assume it's easier to sin than to do right. Now remember, we all act out what we really believe. So if you assume it's easier to sin than to do right, what's it going to lead to? It's going to lead to sin. Now, friends, we've got to understand that we act out what we really believe, not what we say we believe. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. It goes on to say, because actually that first word, heart, there's a different word, but then it says, uh, uh, his heart is not with you. In other words, he's being deceptive. You see, what's really in the heart, that's what you play out. Some years ago, I was in a meeting where a pastor told me a funny story. He had been at his church long enough to be loved. You're there long enough to either be hated or loved. But uh, he'd been there long enough to be loved, and he was loved, thankfully. Uh, but one spring, he noticed on the calendar that April 1st, April Fool's Day, was, was landing on a Sunday. So he had a sense of humor. <laughs> and he thought he'd have some fun. And uh, they, uh, they had the kind of schedule where you had... Uh, 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 this is some years ago, uh, Sunday school, and then you had the morning service. So at the end of Sunday school, he announced his resignation. And I mean, people immediately broke into tears, and they dismiss, and he goes and hides, and they're crying and weeping, and it, it's, it's a mess. <laughs> then he comes back out for the Sunday morning service and says, April Fool's. Well, let me tell you, it did not go over. <laughs> And a few months later, they got him back in Christian love, of course. But now, when they were all crying and weeping, he hadn't really resigned, but they believed he had. And they were acting what they believed. We all do. But now, wait a second. Is it really easier to sin than to do right? You know, the Bible says in 1 John 5, 3, that God's commandments are not burdensome. Say, preacher, I know, I know that's what it says, but, you know, man, I'm telling you, you know, sometimes it really, it seems like they're burdensome. Well, you have to understand God's economy. In God's economy of grace, in God's economy of spirit enablement, the currency is faith. And faith is not a work. Faith depends on the worker. And as you depend on the worker, God works. That's why they're not burdensome. If they seem burdensome, it's because there's a, Faith is not accessing grace because when there's faith, which is not a work, you access grace where God enables and does the work. Did not Jesus say in Matthew 11, 
that my yoke is easy. You see, when you get under the yoke with Jesus, guess whose shoulders carry the load? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. In other words, it's, it's, there's no burden. Why? Because Jesus is carrying the load. Now, I want you to think with me. Is it hard for a dog to act like a dog? No. I was at pasture next today, and his dog came over and sniffed me. That's what dogs do. I don't go around and sniff people. <laughs> That's what dogs do. Okay. Is it hard for a pig to act like a pig? No. It's just they're acting what they are. Okay, so I have a question for you. If we are saints, should it not be easy to act saintly? Wow. Let's go to a sixth symptom of a sin-conscious system of belief. This is another big one. You assume your default mode is to sin unless you deliberately choose righteousness. You assume the default is to sin unless you deliberately choose righteousness. You know, if that's what you really believe, then the burden's all on you. I've been there. Everything I'm describing here, I used to live in all of this, and there are times when I tragically revert to it. But you know, if the burden's on us, you know, uh, the default is to sin unless I deliberately choose right, well, you know, then inevitably we're going to go down. But you know, it's a wrong thinking to think that. There's something that happened when you were born again at your core. We dealt with this a meeting or two ago. I think it was actually several meetings ago. I'm sure you remember all the messages, of course, as I mentioned this morning. But <laughs> there's something that happened at your core that the real you has a different default. Now, there's still that old sin master who still resides in us. But do you know... God says in Romans 6 and verse 2, that's just a couple of verses away from our text. There's something happened when you got saved and got placed into Jesus. You got placed into his death and therefore his death to sin. You got severed from that sin master, raised with Christ the new man. That's the new you, the real you. And that's where the Holy Spirit moved in. And do you know that the default of the real you, which is God's nature implanted into you, is to choose God every time. Every time. God's nature chooses God every time. Oh. So the reality is your default mo mode is to choose Jesus unless you do, uh, is, yeah, to, to choose Jesus unless you deliberately choose sin. So it's just like, you know, your computer and you set the default to print off of this printer and that's what's going to happen unless you go in and deliberately change it. The default of the real you is Jesus. Now, the default of that old sin master that still resides in our soul and body levels, yeah, that's going to be to do wrong, but that's not you. The old you died with Christ, was raised the new you. The new you is the new creation. It is God's DNA, God's nature implanted into you, which perhaps we'll expand upon later. That default is to Jesus. Now, I want you to think with me. You know, when you walk in the Spirit, when you default to Jesus, when you walk in the provision of the Spirit's leadership, the Spirit of Jesus and the Spirit's power in your life, when that happens, you're accessing Jesus. 
I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The end of the verse says, by faith. You see, when you by faith take his leadership, you're taking his life, and that means it's not I, but Christ. And do you know when it's not I, but Christ, everything you do at, in those moments is an act of righteousness. Wow. I mean, it's got to be, because it's Jesus. You see, when that alarm goes off, and you don't feel like getting up, <laughs> but you say, Lord, i got to get up. I'm looking to you. And there's that enablement. And as you put your foot out of the bed, he helps you get the second foot out. <laughs> that's how it works. It's that practical. Do you know that's an act of righteousness? You see, when you're walking in the sphere of the Spirit, in the provision of the Spirit, when you're walking in the Spirit, it's not of a Christ. When it's not of a Christ, when you brush your teeth, it's an act of righteousness. <laughs> you see, when you're walking in the Spirit, it's not I but Christ, and when it's not I but Christ, when you change the baby's diapers, that's really an act of righteousness. But do you get the point? Whenever we're walking in the Spirit, everything we do is an act of righteousness. So back to that question, how many sins would you say you commit compared to acts of righteousness? Do you know for a child of God who understands what it is to walk in the Spirit, there should be way more acts of righteousness sins. And one guy in a meeting in Tennessee last year got a hold of this. He was so excited. And, uh, you know, walking in the Spirit, it's an act of righteousness, not I but Christ. And his wife came home with the groceries. She said, honey, would you help me bring in the groceries? And uh, instead of complaining or just kind of, you know, whatever, he opened the door and says, yes, ma'am. And she's thinking, what happened to him? <laughs> but he's thinking, act of righteousness. Beautiful. You see, everything a Christian does when he's walking in the spirit and not caving into the flesh, is an act of righteousness. It's I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Wow. My father used to put it this way. The new nature is a new natural. See, default mode. And it's natural for the new you, which is the real you, to walk with Jesus. Lord willing, we'll expand on that later. Number seven. Seventh symptom of a sin-conscious system of belief, you assume God loves you more when you perform well and less when you don't. Now, this is big. Performance-based Christianity, it's big. I've lived here for years. God's been freeing, from me, uh, freeing me from this over the years, but it's easy to go back to it. This performance-based thinking, you know, oh, man, I blew it. It'll be two weeks again before God will bless me again. See, that's performance-based. That's being a Catholic Baptist. It's works sanctification. When the reality is, God loves you unconditionally. As much on your worst day as on your best. Now, obviously, when we sin, it grieves him, but it's somebody who loves us who can be grieved. But his love doesn't change. And so the performance-based thinking that, you know, God's more happy with me when I do well, and he's ticked off when I blow it, and uh, he loves me more when I do right. See, all of that's performance-based. When the guy who performed, his name was Jesus. <laughs> See, it's a matter of accessing him. See, that's what what, what with, you know, without faith, without the access of Jesus, it's impossible to please God. 
Much more could be said, but those are the seven symptoms. There are others, I'm sure, but they reveal deceptions. Because if that's how we think, if, you know, let's say four or five of those fit how we're thinking, then it shows we've bought into Satan's lies. And they describe us, and the reality is we act what we really believe, and that's why we're struggling sinners instead of righteous reigning. So there's the description, there's the diagnosis. Now let's get to the deliverance, and we'll just touch this tonight, and Lord willing, we'll expand it, I'm sure, as the meeting progresses. But the deliverance for a sin-conscious mindset. Let's go back to our text. We do have one. <laughs> uh, go back to verse 17. Now, I love this. This is absolutely an amazing verse. Since by one man's trespass, death reigned, ruled, had dominion through that one man, how much more will those who receive? Now, the word receive is a fascinating word. It is in many cases in our New Testament translated take. You see, it's not saying be given. All of us are being given Jesus. Thanks be to God who is giving us the victory, Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. That's a constant. That's why the name of the Lord is a strong tower. That's why he is giving mega grace. That's why the fruit of the Spirit is love and all that comes with that. Why? Because his name is Jesus and he is living in you every moment. He is giving us the victory. But notice the condition here. It's faith. You have to take it. You know, if somebody handed you a $100 bill and said, you know, I just want to give you this. If you're smart, what are you going to do? <laughs> take it. If you're courteous, what are you going to say? Thank you. That's why it says, thanks be to God, who is giving us the victory. You see, you take by faith what God is giving. To thank you means you believe you've got it. See, it's the apex of faith. That's why praise is so important. But the fact of the matter is, we're to be taking. So it says, they're beautifully stated, how much more will those who keep taking? By the way, it is in the present tense. This is not a one-time thing not a one-time second blessing. It's a repeated access of your first blessing. When you got saved, Jesus moved in. He's there. His, he's living in us, but Galatians 2.20 says it's by faith. If you don't take that reality, you miss out on the benefit. You see, there is a stream of God's life from the throne right into you. Unbelief blocks the manifest flow of the stream, but faith allows his life to be manifest. See, Take those who keep receiving, those who keep taking. How much more will those who keep taking, receiving the overflow of grace? Not just grace, but the overflow, the abundance, this, this superabundance of God in your life. You see, if we really believe that that almighty God is living inside of us, and he is more than enough and more than sufficient for every temptation we face, for every day we go through, and we can take. See, if we believe he's there, regardless of feelings, we can keep taking this overflow of grace, supernatural enablement through the Holy Spirit to do God's will. Grace, spirit enablement, Jesus' power. And so how much more will those who keep taking this overflow of grace and of the gift of righteousness. Do you know that the only righteousness God accepts is his own? That means for us, righteousness is always a gift. You see, we need imputed righteousness in justification. We need imparted righteousness in sanctification. Why? Because only God meets the standard of God. 
So here it is, and of the gift of righteousness. When you are taking his grace, that provision of the Spirit uh, imparting the life of Christ to you, that means you're accessing him, and therefore the, righteous, the righteousness that, of his righteous life enabling you, it's always a gift. When we actually live right, it's a gift. It's grace, but it's by faith. you got to keep taking this provision. See, our responsibility is faith, but faith is not a work. That's why this isn't burdensome, as we saw earlier. And so you keep taking this overflow. Thank you, Jesus, of grace and of the gift of righteousness. And then it says, reign. How much more will those who do this reign, rule, overcome, have dominion, in life, that's right now. You see, there, we're either overcome or we're overcomers. You know there's only one overcoming life. His name is Jesus. He said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So the way we become overcomers is to access him. So you keep taking this overflow of grace and of the gift of righteousness. And when you do, you reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Now that's the key. The focus is on a person. Isn't it amazing? The focus is not on the list of good things. The list of do's and don'ts. And by the way, so, some of those things on the list are good things. Now, sometimes we add all sorts of man's traditions. I, I get that. Whatever. But you know, there are some things that are important. They're good. But the focus can't be the stuff. The focus can't be the guidelines. It has to be the guide. Not the list, but the person shall reign in life by one man, Jesus Christ. Why is that so important? Because whatever or whoever you focus on is whatever or whoever you depend on. Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking unto Jesus, focus. The author of faith, dependence. You see, when there's God focus, there'll be God dependence. So if we're looking unto something other than Jesus, our list, whether it's rules or no rules, either way, it's a focus on rules. It's not a focus on a person. You see, if you focus on your version of law, the law has no power to enable you. And whatever you focus on, you depend on. So if you're depending on that which has no power to enable you, then you default back to self-dependence. And that's why in Romans 7, you have from verse 7 to 14, law, 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 law. Yes, it's holy and just and good, but it's law, 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 which has no power to enable. It is very important. It's God's law, but it's not the power source. It's not the object. It's not the goal. The goal is a person. And what happens in Romans 7 is you go from law, 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 law to I, 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 the good that I would, I do not, the evil that I would not. Uh, that's what I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. Why? Because the law focus means you're back to self-dependence because the law can't help you. It can't empower you. That has to come from a per person. And so he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who? shall deliver me. He tried the watts, the law. Now who shall deliver me? I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. There it is. That's the key. So let's, uh, 
where was I here? We're on the deliverance. Let me just walk through this very quick and we will be done. Oh, yeah, I was just on the text. I didn't even get to the, uh, where I'm after here. Okay, uh, back to uh, what we're seeing here on the deliverance for a sin-conscious mindset. Okay, so if we have a wrong way of thinking, I got ahead of myself, but that's okay, all right? Uh, if we have a wrong way of thinking, then obviously we have to change our thinking. You know there's a Bible word that means change your thinking. Anybody know what it is? Call it out. What does it mean to change your mind, to change your thinking? That's repent. So this is a revival repentance. If we have a wrong way of thinking, we've got to change our thinking. That means there has to be a change of that system of belief. That means there has to be a heart changed. That's the whole point. But if you're going to change your thinking, it can't be wishful thinking. That won't get you anywhere. It has to be based on truth. So what's the truth? There's three truths right here. And I've already said most of this, so this will be real quick. Number one, there's positional truth. That is the truth of justification, whereby when you put your faith in Jesus, you are declared righteous. We see the word justification in verse 18. Uh, we're told when this happens in chapter 5 and verse 1, we have peace uh, with God uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it says uh, at the beginning of that, therefore, since we have been declared righteous, that means justified by faith. In other words, as we saw this morning, the moment you put your faith in Jesus as Savior, among many other salvation truths, you are justified, which means you are declared righteous. We saw that our sin was put on Jesus legally so that his righteousness is put on us. Now, with the righteousness of Christ has been put on us, what percentage is it? It's 100%. So back to that question, what percentage of your average day would you say is righteous? The answer should be 100%. It was a trick question. The key was the word is. We often take the question is, you know, what percentage of your day did you live righteous? But the question is what percentage of your day is righteous? And if you're saint, Legally, the answer is 100%. Do you know that when you go to heaven, you will walk in with your head up? Because we don't walk in on our own righteousness. Isn't that wonderful? Even somebody who has a tragic moment, they take their life. I have a dear friend who's had to deal with this kind of thing, and another friend who had to deal with a son who was really doing well, but... Uh, he went back to drugs that he had gotten off from, and he OD'd, and he died. And I remember his brother was having a hard time with us. I said, you need to understand something. Obviously, that was a tragic choice, but I'm going to tell you something. When he went to heaven, even through that tragic death of ODing, he walked in with his head up because he didn't walk in on his righteousness. He walked in on the righteousness of Jesus. See, positional truth, justification, whereby we are declared righteous, but then there's provisional truth. This is regeneration whereby there's a part of us that is made righteous. Did you notice there in verse 19, uh, one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so through the one man's obedience, many will be made, made, not just declared, but made righteous. You see, when you're saved, you're declared righteous, but there's a part of you that's actually made righteous. That's regeneration. That's the spirit part of your being, which we may detail in a in another message, but that's that part of you that God calls the new creation. I referred to it earlier. It's that new man. It's the seed of God. It's God's DNA. It's God's nature implanted in you, and that part of you is actually righteous. 
Not just declared righteous. Praise the Lord, we're declared righteous even though the soul and body haven't caught up. But your spirit is made righteous. It's constituted righteous. And that's why I said earlier, you're not only human. There's a part of you that's God's nature implanted into you. That part is righteous. Has to be. That's why it says the new man is created after God in righteousness and true holiness. You see, there had to be a part of you made holy. That's your spirit, so that the Holy Spirit could move in. There had to be a holy turf. That's regeneration, so that the Holy Spirit could move in to lead and empower. It's not the absence of our weakness. It's the presence of his strength. So there's positional truth, justification, whereby we are declared righteous. There's provisional truth. That's regeneration. There's a part of us that's made righteous. It's more than legal position. It's provision. And that's where the Holy Spirit moves in. And then there's practical truth. There's a faith access whereby we may live righteous. And that's where I got ahead of myself. I already gave that part. That's where you focus on Jesus. You see, there's the faith access. Whatever you focus on, you depend on whoever you focus on. And when there is that Jesus focus, there can be that Jesus dependence. And that's when you access the righteous one himself. And that's when you live righteous. That's when you piggyback on his righteousness. You see, grace, the power of the Spirit in you, never leads us to sin. Grace is far greater than our sin, but it never leads us to sin. You see, the faith access means we take the provision of Christ in us. And therefore, we experience his life, and that's when we live righteous. And that's when the righteous reign. Now, let's wrap this up. I want you to know, by the way, I meant to tell you this at the beginning of the service. This message <laughs> is the longest message of the week. And I don't know what time I started, but we're almost done. Uh, I meant to tell you ahead of time that this one was going to be a little bit longer just so you don't get discouraged about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. But we started at 5 tonight. <laughs> and I haven't figured out how to shorten this message. But at any rate, we'll get there someday. Maybe. But here's the point. If you're going to change your thinking, you have to be convinced. You know who the convincer is? His name is the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convince of sin, righteousness, and judgment. When we think of those three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment, which two do we typically put to the top of the list? That the Holy Spirit convicts of sin and judgment. So here's the big point of the message. Let the Holy Spirit convict you of righteousness. A girl said to me, what do you mean convicting of righteousness? Word convict means to convince. Let the Holy Spirit convince you. There is a part of you that's been made righteous. And you've also been declared righteous, even though the soul and body haven't caught up yet. And by faith, you can access Jesus and therefore live righteous. Let the Holy Spirit convince you of righteousness. That therefore, you can keep taking this overflow of grace and this gift of righteousness and reign in life. By the righteous one himself, Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Lord, thank you for your truth. I pray that you would convince us of the truth so that we change our thinking and start reveling in who we are in Christ. Declared righteous, a part that's made righteous, 
but by faith we can receive your overflow of grace and live righteous. Lord, use the truth to make a difference in our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.